hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. Welcome back to another great episode of Queer Money. This week, we're talking about the hot topic of home buying. Are you in the market to buy or sell a home? Then we have a great show for you. We're joined by William S. Matthews from Houston, who is a 10-year veteran in, realist, in the real estate industry, and he shares with us seven great tips for home buyers, as well as others for those of you who may be thinking of selling. Thank you for subscribing, writing a review, and rating this show on iTunes. This was a fun episode for us to record. We had a lot of fun with William. We think you'll enjoy the show too. And remember to share this show with anyone that you know that may be looking to buy or sell a home. So let's get on with the show. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. Okay, let's see if this card goes through for that $8,000 drink. (laughs) Everybody wants to be a part of the in crowd. Everybody wants to... To look good. My decision was, I'm not a victim. I'm not going to stay and work someplace where this is a problem. Normally, we don't drink on queer money, but because we're talking about a subject that David is rather vanilla on. Um... <laughs> Grab a glass of wine because you're listening to Queer Money with the Debt Free Guys. This is the only show helping our community do more and be more by talking about money from the queer perspective. Welcome back, and thank you for joining us for another awesome show for Queer Money. Uh, This week, we are uh, having the amazing William S. Matthews back with us from Houston, Texas. Uh, William has been a guest with us before, and we're really excited to have him back. Third time, right? Uh, He's a Queer Money regular. Uh, So we're really excited to have him back. Um, This week, we have an awesome show where we're talking about real estate, which seems to be a hot topic right now. Uh, Many people are saying we are are either in a bubble. uh, Others are saying, actually had a knock on the door by a real estate agent earlier this week saying it's the time to sell because uh, days on the market are down. So we thought we'd have a pertinent discussion about real estate. And uh, William is an expert in this area in Houston, so we wanted to bring him on. Among many things, he's uh, an ingenue of party planning. He's a two-time author, right? Uh, yes. Two-time author, yes. and um, he's also a real estate guru. So that's why. Oh, we're ooh, to talk. you guys are so kind. The check <laughs> is in the mail. The check is in the mail. <laughs> so William, why don't you share a little bit about yourself with our audience? Well, I just as you guys stated, uh, of course, my name is William Matthews, and I do have a real estate broker's license. I have a real estate background. Everyone in my family sells real estate. So I literally grew up watching both of my parents sell homes and doing loans for families. Both of my parents are real estate brokers and they have their own real estate business. So ever since I can remember, I was around the real estate industry. And so everyone in my family, we graduate high school and you go to real estate school. (laughs) So you get your real estate license before you even step foot on the college campus for your freshman day. But it's always something to have to fall back on. And it's funny for me because when I was in college and in grad school, when most of my friends would get a summer or the Christmas holiday job at the mall working at the Gap, I was in my parents' real estate office selling houses during the summer break. So it was really, really cool. But I don't know if I'm a guru per se, but I'm going to try my best to answer all the questions tonight and try to give, um, you know, people who watch this podcast a little bit 
information, break some misconceptions, and possibly answer some questions that they they have and, and want to know. So yeah, cool. Absolutely. So, we're, so, we're, so you're not a uh, what, what's her name on uh, Shark Tank? Uh, uh, Cochran. Um, oh, no. I can't remember her first name, but uh, she's the the real estate mogul on on Shark Tank, and she's uh, she's considered a real estate guru. She's awesome. I, I like her. She's very uh, William S. Matthews is feisty. Shark Tank guru. <laughs> yes, exactly. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so I think it's pretty interesting. You know, um, I've been doing a lot of work with different companies with regard to um, the, the the higher education bubble and the higher cost of it uh, of, of going to college and how that might be detrimental to people to students right now because trying to get a job that pays that uh, that loan helps pay that loan back is a little bit difficult. Um, so I think it's pretty smart of your parents to and maybe your whole family apparently to sort of make everybody get a skill first, or get a get a get a license of some nature first before they even step foot on the campus. I think it's pretty that's pretty prescient. Yeah, that that's really smart. Yeah. You know, if you wouldn't mind, it is very interest. That's a very interesting story. Do you have anything that you could maybe share with us that is a funny or interesting story from that time period of when you were going through that education, or maybe it's something that your family has done that's a little different? Well, sure. I'm put you on the spot here. <laughs> God, I, I have several stories. For one, I failed my real estate exam oh. twice, <laughs> and I kept thinking. I'm just a kid. I'm 18 years old and I'm studying for this and studying, getting your real estate license, at least to a teenager, it felt like studying for the the law bar or something. It was very intense with so much information that I had to remember. And I remember my parents kept telling me, no, you're just going to keep taking the test until you pass, until you pass. They were very supportive with it, but I just felt like the stupidest person in the world because on my second time, I fell by three points oh. and it, it, it just, it broke me, but it was interesting for me to be able to step foot on a college campus. And even before I was getting ready to take my accounting classes and my business class, cause I was a business major one into my sophomore year, I kind of already knew a lot with yeah. accounting and budgeting and, and, and just so much. So it, it was really interesting. So I always tell people, I kind of have maybe that honorary degree, your real estate license and my bachelor's and my master's. So it I just what I always remember that the families that my 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 parents would work with and I would see my family working with these individuals and sometimes they would get turned down for these home loans. So I would see so many families that were denied a home loan or they didn't get the house that they wanted because there was a shift in their credit or their savings. And as a young child, I didn't necessarily understand why aren't they going to be able to buy that home or what happened? Why are they so sad now? Right. So my parents started instilling at me at a very early age, the importance of saving money, having good credit. And I think that's what propelled me on my journey, my financial literacy journey to talk to so many individuals about money. And even when I was in college, I used to always talk to my you know, my friends in college about you guys better be careful what you're doing with your credit and your savings and your money now. And even dealing with other young professionals that I come in contact on a daily basis since they know my background is in real estate right. they always come to me with different questions yeah smart well i think it's that's brilliant of your parents i mean like today is a great opportunity for students to think maybe like getting a trade is better than going to college and taking on all that debt um you know we know some people in our family who have just recently graduated with 
six figures worth of, of debt. And that's, you know, for a 21, 22 year old, that's for me, that's, <laughs> that would give me a heart attack. So, um, you know, I think it's pretty pressing of your parents to, to give you that skill. And, um, and if nothing else, you can always fall back on that, right? Cause it like, the, it's the real estate market is cyclical and there's, you know, there's always a need for a good real estate agent. So pretty it cool. is. Yeah. Great to have. It's great to have, great to fall back on, and it gives me a wealth of knowledge and information that I can share with people. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So all that being said, and since you are um, the bona fide guru of real estate. <laughs> for tonight. <laughs> um, uh, what, what are your thoughts on, on the housing market right now, um, both um, you know, locally in uh, Texas, your state, as well as maybe nationally? So here in the city, uh, Houston, I was actually a, a story on the front page of our Houston Chronicle today talking about the sales prices have dipped a little bit for the month of July. The numbers have just come in. Mm -hmm. And so it seems that, you know, our market, at least here in the oil town, it's taken a dive uh, as of the past year. And it now seems that the oil prices are now starting to affect the home buying market. So... There's been a little shift, so it's definitely becoming a buyer's market, which is could be a great thing. Um, you know, people are still buying homes, and the un, the thing that I always tell people, the perfect time if you're thinking about selling your home is to put your home on the market during the summertime, because that's the time where most people purchase a home. If kids are out of school, if people are trying to relocate and move, they're trying to do it during the summer for various reasons. So. Summer months have always been a great time for buyers and sellers. So to hear that that the market was slowed down a little bit for the summer was a little dis discouraging. But I think we're doing fine here in our market. There is for sale signs that I'm always seeing. I was just having dinner with a friend last night who is a young professional, and he's wanting to get out of his penthouse and purchase a home. But he doesn't want to move too far into the suburb. He doesn't want to go to the suburbs. He's very clear that he wants to stay in the central city, sure. being around everything. And so the discussion that he and I were having, I was saying, well, what amenities do you want? Do you want to be close to the hospital and grocery stores and parks? Because those are things that I like to, to, to see, especially what millennials there's so much talk about what do millennials want. Millennials are not going to be moving to the suburbs. And so here is a millennial that's getting ready to leave his 16th story penthouse, purchasing a home. He was a perfect research candidate for me to sure. talk to. Right. Yeah. And what was he looking for? So the biggest thing for him was safety. Uh, his oh. girlfriend is going to be relocating from Vancouver, Canada to, to Houston. Uh, big difference. Yeah. But they've been dating now for a few years. And he travels a lot for work and he wants to make sure that if he's out of town for work, she's comfortable and OK in the house. And she's comfortable by, you know, running in the morning or in the late part of the afternoon because they're a very fit couple. Mm -hmm. So that was the biggest thing for him also was being around green space, parks, uh, being around public transit. Those are the things that I was in a focus group just the other day talking about living central that millennials care about. It's not necessarily for millennials caring so much about how many schools are in the neighborhood and what's the school rating. It's about the amenities and public transit and parks and, and greenery and the neighborhood. Um, they actually really do care about the neighborhood. Is there a civic association? Are the members engaged in the community? What are the zoning rules and what are the HOAs association? What are the type of rules and policies they have? So, you know, purchasing a home is the biggest investment that you'll ever make. So you definitely want to take your time and make sure that it's the right decision for you. Interesting. Sure.
I think it's good information because millennials are such a huge demographic. Um, they're larger actually than the baby boom demographic and certainly larger than the Gen Xers. And so it's, it's good to know what the upwardly mobile millennials are looking for. If you're um, a Gen Xer or a baby boomer, or even if you're a, another millennial looking to sell your home, those are important things to take into consideration. Exactly. Yeah, I think that uh, when you think about it, that the massive number of millennials who are <laughs> Moving out of their parents' basement apartments <laughs> or, you know, moving out of apartments and are looking to buy a condo or buy a home. So, we, you know, we, we have heard the stories and actually I read something the other day that said that millennials are eight years behind previous generations in purchasing their first home. But they're starting to pick that's that is starting to pick up steam. So they are starting to go out there and look for homes and look for condos and starting to purchase. So we know that there's the potential for the market to increase based on sheer numbers of individuals moving into the market. So sure. that could be a good thing for those of us who want to sell and maybe not yeah. a good thing for those of us who are yeah. looking to buy. <laughs> so was that because it, of student loan debt that there were yeah. eight years or primarily is that... it is uh, just to piggyback on your statement there. That's one of the, many reasons why I wrote my second book on money management because so many millennials were having to move back home. I mean, they were graduating with these degrees, but they had this enormous amount of debt. And I'm a millennial myself, and I can attest to it. So I was practically speaking to my generation. Right. And it's unfortunate that a lot of them had to delay or either definitely press the pause or the panic button on purchasing a home, which is really the American dream of what everybody strives for. So it really entailed them moving back home with their parents in the same room that they grew up in. I had to do the very same thing after graduate school. Uh, my story was I couldn't find a job yet. And so I decided to create my own job, but that's for another show. Yeah. Uh, so I moved back home. And I, I lived with my and it was a definite culture shock for me because after being on my own for so long, having my own apartment, having to go back home because you really can't afford to live on your own. Or I have other friends that are millennials and they are they can't afford to purchase a home because of the student loans and they're taking out apartment, but they have two to three roommates. Right. And the amount of money that some of my friends are paying every month to, to student loans, Sally Mae, which speaking of, I have to make my Sally Mae pay. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it almost just breaks your heart that they're willing to, they're having to sacrifice so much just for an education. Right. And it's something that we really, as a country, as a whole, political system or God knows whatever, we really need to get it under control because it's only going to get worse. And to think that in 20 or 10 years, if we don't do something, the, the idea of going to college is probably going to be what, about a million dollars. It's crazy. And so the amount of money that my friends are spending on uh, paying their monthly, their monthly student loans is almost like a house note. Sure. Right. Sure. That book you referenced, was that everything I needed to know about money I learned from my broke ass friends? Look, that's, <laughs> that's available on Amazon for ten dollars. <laughs> there you go. Go to my website, williammatthews.com. It'll change your life. So yeah, in the book, I talk about purchasing a home, what you should look out for, things you should do before you go and apply for a home loan. And this was a conversation I had last night with my friend. These are the things that you need to start to prepare for before. So give yourself like thirty to sixty days of a checklist. These are the things that I need to do before you go in and apply for a home loan or a mortgage or however. And I always recommend to people to start at your bank 
you bank with them. You help your bank make money. So why shouldn't you go and apply for a mortgage with them first before you just go out to some random, you know, ABC mortgage company? Try with your bank because a lot of times they will give you deals and promotions and they're able to cut fees that they mostly won't give to just some person off the street applying for the, for the loan application. So and even if they don't present it, uh, inquire, inquire. So have a list of questions make sure you do your homework and your due diligence process because it is a very big step and it can be very overwhelming. And nowadays, most mortgage companies just say apply online and you can get approved in 20 minutes. But know that the approval, it is a pre-approval and the key word is pre. And that pre-approval is only good for 60 days. So it does not last forever. And if you go out and you go out and buy a car, during that 60 days, your score and your debt to income ratio is going to shift drastically and you may not necessarily be approved anymore. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so think about it logically, what you want to purchase. If you're looking to buy a home, maybe it's not the smartest time to also buy a car. Right. Uh, or maybe buy, you buy the car after you buy the garage that the car can go into. <laughs> right. Or just go pay cash for a little putt-putt car. I <laughs> a client that I was working with a few years ago who was actually a friend of mine from college. And at the process of buying the home, his car died on him. He was like, well, you know, I'm going to have to go buy a car. And I'm like, no, you're too close to closing. Go and buy a little putt-putt car. Keep that for you know, six months or whatever the case, but you cannot afford to buy a car right now because we don't want to rock the boat. You're yeah. too close. Okay. So if you can hold out, great. If you can't, just go to a corner lot, pay cash for a car. Of course, get it checked out by a professional licensed mechanic, but you, you don't want to apply for another line of, of credit right now. Right. Very interesting. Yeah, well, so you're talking about uh, an, a major impact on someone's credit score or the risk that uh, a bank or mortgage company would look at uh, at them and say, you're more risky now because you have more debt than you did, say, two weeks ago. So and it's a shift in your credit score. Absolutely. Yep. So you want to hold off. And another story, I, I worked with a client back about six, seven years ago, who was purchasing a home and, and we were almost to the finish line and he was one of those impulsive shoppers. So he would go to Lowe's and Home Depot, just so excited about buying a home. And he actually went to Lowe's one weekend and he started purchasing floors, hardwood floors. And he bought all these hardwood floors, just put in somebody's house or whatever. He was buying the floors for his home, but he had no place to put them. <laughs> and he called me and he told me this. And I'm like, why are you spending money on all this stuff? You do not have the keys to the home yet. Do not just anything else. I have so many people that get so excited. They start buying paint and furniture, TVs. And you know, at any given moment, that mortgage company, they can run your credit again. They may want to see your, your bank statement to see the flow of money that's going in and out. And you're buying something for, you're buying products for a home that you don't even have. People have bought refrigerators, don't even have a house yet. I said, you're buying hardware floors for a home that you don't even own. And sadly to say, the deal fell through and he was not able to get the house. It wasn't because of a shift on his end, but it just brought me back to my point of I told you so. So now you have all these floors right. that are sitting in storage that you don't even have a home to put them in. I know you're excited, but just wait. Slow down. Yeah. Don't put the carpet off the horse. Right. That's, so that's a, that's a really good tip for, for our listeners and something you may want to be thinking about, that if you are considering purchasing a home, 
and you're planning for that, even if you haven't started actually looking, you may want to think about putting your spending on pause or maybe even uh, 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 drawing your spending down so that you're, in a sense, shining up your credit ability or your credit score for, uh, for prospective uh, uh, lenders. So it gives them an opportunity to see that you can have or exercise a little bit of self-control. Right. Absolutely. Exactly. So say I'm looking to buy a home now. What would you, um, you know, what do you foresee? Where do, where do you see the market going and what considerations should I take into account? So depending on where you stay, obviously just do your research. Try to narrow down the neighborhoods that you want to be in. Uh, look at the information of what you need to apply for a mortgage. Uh, how much of a down payment? Are you, are you going to go FHA or conventional? Do your research to figure out exactly what those two options give you. Of course, I can spend the entire time tonight breaking down all real estate terms, but why bother? There's Google. So <laughs> uh, so just determine whether you're going to have to put 3 to 5% down or 20% down. And um, what amenities are you looking for? Do you want a townhouse, a condo, a single family home? And the key thing to remember, and definitely for all the millennials that are out there, when you purchase a home, please do not feel that this is the home that you're going to die in. You're making an investment. And most of, the, most of the time, your first home, you're only in your first home three to five years. So even though it is a large investment that you're making, do not go into it with the mindset that the home has to be ideal and perfect. Right. For this is the home that I'm going to raise all my kids and my grandkids. No, you're probably going to be in the home three to five years, and then you're either going to want Something bigger, smaller, your taste may change. You might get a job out of town, on the other side of town. You, your lifestyles will change. So that's one of the things that I always have to tell young professionals because they just they just have this feeling that I'm going to be stuck with this forever. Or you might just decide, hey, I, I, I want something else and I just want to rent this house out or I want to sell it. So just bear that in mind. And the biggest thing that I can always tell people, if you're purchasing your first home, Always remember, please crawl. You have to crawl before you walk. Mm. And I think people primarily, definitely young professionals and millennials, I want to say this because I'm one of them. You want to start at the top. Mm. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get the gated community home or if you, you know, maybe want that penthouse. Start something. Maybe start at an older home. The house that I live in currently was built 60 years ago. And I'm the youngest person on my street. Um, my original hardware floor, but I purchased a home that to me was, it had character and it was affordable. And I wanted, I didn't want to shackle myself to golden handcuffs and what I call golden handcuffs or a mortgage or a car note that is taking up half my paycheck or the majority of my paycheck. And so friends were always astonished when I told them my mortgage and I don't even mind sharing that with you all because I talk about it in my second book. My mortgage is less than $500 a month. Wow. wow. And so <laughs> that's how I'm able to go to Europe and dress nice and do all these <laughs> crazy things because I got a home that was very small, an older home. I, I didn't go get something that was brand spanking new. I got something that was very affordable. So just weigh the options for yourself and look at some neighborhoods that you didn't even think about that are possibly affordable for you. Gotcha. So that second book you referenced is that I needed uh, everything I needed to know about life I learned from my um, event planner. Mm. No, that's the first book. Oh, that's the first book. Oh, there's a third book, book then. 
No, no. So the first book is the event planning book. The second book is oh, the romance friend. I'm, I'm out of order. Sorry. Yeah, no, you're yeah. all out of order. No third book just yet, but it's coming. It'll, it different. sounds to me, based on what you're just saying, then, and I think this is smart for our listeners and, and, and viewers to take into consideration, especially if you're a millennial or you're buying your first home, that your first home should maybe be more of a strategy and less of a goal. How is it going to fit into your, your long-term financial plan? Maybe you buy something that's a little bit cheaper, more affordable, something that seems like it might be more of, a, of an apartment or a rental property. Mm-hmm. You buy it, you live in it for a couple of years, and then maybe you can you know, transition to the point where you can buy a bigger, nicer home, and you can use your first home as a rental property, or you can use it to catapult you um, as, as, down, as a down payment to get a nicer home in the future. Yeah. You know what? It, one of the things that I think a lot of us have experienced or seen is this uh, this trend in the market over the last maybe seven or eight years of individuals moving in and fixing and flipping. And they're taking a home that maybe needs a little TLC and they're putting in tens of thousands of dollars and they're turning around and selling it for hundreds of thousands of dollars more than what they purchased it for. So it's it, it, it's interesting you say that a lot of us, a lot of individuals want to move into a home and they want to start out at the top. Oftentimes when you're starting out at the top, you're losing out on appreciation that somebody else has taken advantage of. So your investment or the ability for your investment to grow may be diminished because you decided to start out at the top. And maybe you have moved into a neighborhood that has already gentrified. So it kind of brings up kind of one of the questions that we've we've been talking about. (laughs) What kind of neighborhoods or, you know, what were you thinking, John, along this lines? Well, one of the questions that we had earlier was, you know, just there seems to be a lot of talk about neighbors throughout neighborhoods throughout the country gentrifying or people wanting to buy a place that's uh, in a neighborhood that's just starting to gentrify. Um, You know, what what thoughts do you have on, on, on that? I think it's great if you can afford it. Uh, There are a few areas in Houston that are definitely on the gentrified market or it's definitely coming. So I tell people if that's what you want, get in. But the thing of those that are still on the horizons to be gentrified, you kind of have to look at the big picture because right now in those neighborhoods, they don't have the green space and the grocery stores and all the places that you can walk to. But it's coming. And definitely if you're one of those areas, which all these areas are close to the central city or downtown, mm-hmm. oh, it's coming. But nowadays, even here in Houston, it's really hard to get into those neighborhoods, even the up and coming gentrified neighborhoods. Yeah. My neighborhood is one of them. And I'm so fortunate that I got in around about eight years ago in my home. Um, and my area, it's becoming because they just expanded the, the light rail. By my oh, house. Nice. So I'm like, oh, and there's all this construction going on. <laughs> and then when I think about it, I'm like, okay, I live close to the university. Now I'm like, I'm right by the airport, right by the rail. Uh oh, it's coming. So you 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 raised a, a great point just a few minutes ago. I brought I bought this my first home as investment property. I bought this house with no idea of moving in it. But when I started looking at other places to to buy. The, the price tags were outrageous. And I'm thinking, why am I spending all this money on trying to buy something else when I already have a home? So I kicked my tenant out and I'm losing. <laughs> <laughs> but I think gentrification is a great thing if you can get in. Uh, possibly, I'll, I'll just say, just proceed with caution because in most areas, and I can only attest to here, that it's still very costly. And so um, just do your homework, do your research. But if that's something that you want to lean towards, maybe go to an area that's 
on the radar, but it hasn't hit yet, but you know it's coming. But be patient because it might take a while, but the value in that home on the long run will far outweigh your impatience. I think one of the other things that you said, uh, proceed with caution. I think one of the other things to think about is um, typically areas that are on the up and coming or that are at the very beginning of gentrification. Um, there's oftentimes a reason why that neighborhood isn't necessarily ideal for real estate. Um, it may be an area where you may it may be um, depressed or there may be um, maybe violence or it may be an area where um, there may be racial tensions. So we, especially as queer individuals coming into those kinds of neighborhoods, we want to exercise caution and make sure that we feel that it it's a safe place. You know, we think back to uh, the 60s, 70s, and 80s when individuals were moving to places like Castro and Hell's Kitchen or Chelsea in New York. Oftentimes, the reason why those up-and-coming neighborhoods were a great place to buy back then is because, for gay people, is because we felt like we were c- congregating in into that area. Um, and that may not be the case today with some of the n- neighborhoods that are gentrifying. So you want to t- you want to think about personal safety is is important. You know, making making sure you feel comfortable in that neighborhood. Um, and you know, it it's um, it's oftentimes the individuals who are willing to take that little bit of extra risk to move into those neighborhoods. Those are the ones who are actually going to reap that big reward. Right. Yeah, I always share with people before you purchase a home, let's say you made an offer, it's been accepted, you're in escrow, always go back and drive through the neighborhood at night, early in the morning, when you get off of work, when you're leaving the club at 2 a.m., go and visit the neighborhood several different times of day during different hours because neighborhoods change depending on the time of day. And that's right. something that you sure. want to be aware of and do it more than once. Don't just do it one time. Like, oh, okay, everything is still fine. <laughs> no, go and see what it's like when the kids get out of school and that time between three and six or early in the morning, what is the commute traffic like? What is it like on the weekends? Are people out walking their dogs or running? Or, you know, is it a complete ghost town? So always go and check on the neighborhood that that you're purchasing on and and do you feel safe? And even I would say even talk to the neighbors, talk to the community. That's something that unfortunately that is dying in American communities. And that's one thing that I can still attest to. In older communities, people still talk to one another. And my neighborhood, that's the only thing that I'm going to share the story because that's all that I know. I know my neighbors very well, and literally, I have gone over their house to borrow sugar. (laughs) (laughs) It still happens in the 21st. Yeah, it's good to hear. So that means William likes to bake. (laughs) Oh yeah, spoonfuls of sugar before bedtime and can't sleep. (laughs) Yeah, I remember Christmas morning. I needed eggs, and I the stores were closed, so I just went to my neighbors. Knock, knock, knock. So yeah. I think, you know, your, your point about patience is, is well taken because David and I bought here um, at our condo about eight years ago. And it was supposed to be within eight months from the time that we purchased that um, a whole bunch of renovations in the neighborhood. A whole five block radius, just two blocks north of us, was supposed to happen. And that didn't happen. And that project got delayed three times. And eight years later, it just started. So yeah. um, now, now it's a lot of gentrification going on right now, but we, we had to wait for eight years for that to happen. So, um, you know, if you are looking to buy in an area and take advantage of the gentrification, just understand that it might not happen in the time frame that you want right. it to or that the, the professionals are quoting you at this time. Right. You, you definitely don't want to hinge your financial future on 
the fact that that gentrification is going to take place or take place within a certain time frame. You know, I think right. that you look back to the the housing bubble and individuals were uh, investing in homes with this idea that my home is always going to be appreciating at five to seven, 10% right. annually. And we know that eventually that steam ran out and then the, you know, the bubble crashed. And so if you're planning on buying a home, don't plan on buying a home with the idea that it's always going to go up in price. You know, you just have yeah. to be cautious about what's happening. Yeah, it's I, a long-term investment, long-term yeah. investment. Exactly. I, I will say one other thing, uh, William, I really appreciate your comment here about taking the time to investigate the home that you're going to live in. It's not a 45-minute process where you walk in the door and see this house for the first time and say, I love it, and then you're done. You know, this idea of what's in the walkability area? What is it like at 2 a.m. in the morning? What is it? I really, that is, to me, probably one of the key points here is it's so easy for us to fall in love with what the kitchen looks like. Or they did redid the bathrooms, or I love these hardwood floors. Cosmetic, yeah. Right. But what are you really purchasing? You're purchasing not only a piece of property, but a lifestyle and an, a, and a neighborhood. So mm -hmm. find out what all of that, that is to you. you know? mm -hmm. Maybe you don't, maybe you don't want to have a bar two doors down. <laughs> maybe you do. So, you know, it's, it really, it just is, it's really up to you. Right. Yeah. The community is very important because not only are you buying a home on a street, but you're essentially investing in the community as well. So you really care about what is around in your area, what type of churches to the grocery stores, to parks, is there a civic association, a homeowners association? How often do they meet? Is there a community pool? And these are questions that you want to know whether you are a single person, a young married couple, or a couple with families, or even a baby boomer that's relocating. These are things that you, you want to know. And it could even be if you're moving into a town for the first time because your job has relocated you. And that's something that we experience here a lot here in Houston because of the the medical field that we have and the oil and energy energy industry, so many people come from all over the world because, you know, Exxon and Shell and the big oil companies and even some of the big hospitals are here. And so we get people all the time having no idea that they were going to end up in Texas, but then they're here and they're just trying to make decisions of where do I go, which communities, and our town is so, uh, so spread out. It's a massive city, you know, the fourth largest city. And so it, it gives a lot for someone to research and ponder. And those are always the suggestions that I give people, whether you're renting or buying, but definitely if you're buying, you want to investigate those things. That's really yeah, good. You know, a couple of things that. to take into consideration is in the neighborhood that you're, you're considering buying, it, are there other neighbors in the neighborhood who are um, fixing up their place? Are they making investments in, in their property? Um, are the costs of, is the cost of parking going up in your area? Um, those are some considerations taking into place if you're looking to buy into an area, especially if, uh, to find if an area is gentrifying so you can take advantage of the increases. Um, you want to look for those kind of microeconomic um, indicators to suggest, you know, which direction the market's going in that area. Right. It's not a guarantee, but taken in totality, everything that we're saying, everything that, that William's saying is, um, can it kind of give you an, an idea of what's going on um, and what might, what might happen in the near future? Yeah. So you're, you're, I think you were alluding there to the article from Trulia that said that uh, there's a couple of things you can look at. Yeah. Yeah. So our business is moving into your neighborhood or into the neighborhood you want to look in, into. That means that they're investing. So if they're investing, they see the potential for people to live close by and, and be there. Uh, 
then uh, is, uh, is the area convenient or is uh, land scarce in the neighborhood, which means that maybe people are buying up property, available land so that they can build. Uh, then um, has, uh, have there been, um, or are there architectural styles that are unique to that area or maybe significant that individuals are finding that's in vogue right now? Uh, I know more recently over the last five, five to 10 years, um, mid-century modern has been big uh, in places, in areas in California and here in Colorado, uh, which we've seen those, uh, those properties appreciate in price. Uh, so is there something architecturally unique about your neighborhood? Uh, and then, um, as John said, the things that are fixed, being, uh, other places are being fixed up in the neighborhood. And then this last one I think is very interesting because this one is one you probably want to work with a real estate agent on. And that is, uh, has there been a slow and steady decrease in the number of days on the market for other places that are for sale? Which kind of shows that there's a, uh, an interest in the neighborhood. Yeah. So it's two points I wanted to make. So for one, you want to research and see, is there zoning laws um, in your community? And I say that because here in Houston, we don't have zoning. It's a blessing and a curse. But you could purchase a home here and your next door neighbor could decide to open up a barbershop or a beauty shop right next door. And it's OK. And we do have some communities here where there are strict zoning laws. But for the majority of our city, there is no zoning. So. Mm -hmm. Is the home you're buying, can they potentially open up a business next door or even down the street? And then you want to check out the, the value, have the properties increased in the area. Now, we do know this, as you stated earlier, it, with the real estate market, similar to the economy, it's a roller coaster. It goes up and down. I was reading an article recently that said that if you purchase a home that's near a Trader Joe's, the property value is actually gone up and there's also if you have a house that is near a uh, your NFL team's uh, arena or stadium oh. like a football field or stadium that your your city teams play for that your property value uh, drastically increases just because you're in uh, like a 10 mile radius of the stadium of your home football team like, go figure so <laughs> Those are things that you want to be mindful of. And the number one question that I always get people, and they say, well, do I, should I get a realtor? Or if I sell my home, should I sell it myself? Now, of course, I'm biased to this because, again, I come from a family of real estate and realtors. <laughs> right. I always feel that, you know, when you go to court, you don't represent yourself. <laughs> so, and when you go to the doctor, you go to the doctor to, to test you and check you out. So you want a professional that this is what they do. And I always tell people, feel free to shop around, interview the real estate agent that's best for you and your lifestyle and what you want to do. You might want to work with another gay real estate agent, or you might feel more comfortable dealing with another African-American or a Latino real estate agent. I remember my mother, when I was young, she went to purchase a car at the Cadillac dealership, and she walked into the dealership floor room, and she said, I have a very peculiar question that I want to present to you all, but I want to know, do you all have any African-American salesmen or any women salespeople? And she explained that to me later. I said, Mom, why did you do that? And at this time, I think I was 12 or 13. And she said, um, she told me, she said, when people are buying houses, it's mostly women or African-American couples. Unfortunately, white men don't come to me to buy houses. So therefore, I wanted to put my dollars back to the people that come to me for my business. That's I was nice. like, wow. <laughs> at a very early age, I understood the concept of that. 
of that. And so it's something that definitely I want to tell people, make sure you feel comfortable with the person that you're going to be working with. Go out of your way and it is okay. It is completely okay to interview real estate agents. Sure. Completely okay. So you brought up the topic of, you know, uh, LGBT people buying real estate, um, either as a home or an investment property. What other considerations, William, would you say that LGBT people should take into consideration when they're looking to get into the market? Are there any unique considerations that maybe their straight peers don't have? Making sure that you brought up the point earlier, make sure that you feel safe in your community. Uh, I think that's an important that's an important key key factor. And so you you want to look at the neighborhood. You want to talk to the neighbors. You want to do as much as research as you can. And it may not be the, the actual gay area like every city has, like the Castro. Ours is Montrose. Like every major city has those those areas where you know you're okay. But if you don't want to be in those areas, it is completely okay to find another community that you want to be in, but you want to make sure that you're comfortable and your community accepts you. And now, because if you want to have your flag, your American, United States of America, as well as your rainbow flag out there on your porch, you need to know that you're going to be comfortable and you're okay with that and your community is okay with that. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard. How do you go into that? Do you interview your neighbors? What kind of research do you do? But at the end of the day, possibly that's something that your real estate agent can help you with because discrimination, although it is outlawed, it is still alive and well out here as we know that. And well, so I will say that the Fair Housing Act does not actually, um, you know, that has a lot of protections for discrimination. It does not protect queer people specifically. Now, there are some loopholes that you can apply the Fair Housing Act to people who discriminate against you, but they, um, the discrimination has to meet certain requirements. So um, that's something to be, in, uh, be considerate of. Um, and uh, something else to be considered of, which is kind of sad. 48% of older same-sex couples um, said they have faced discrimination when applying for senior housing. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, even at the end of your life or the latter years of your life, it's still something that, unfortunately, you still need to consider. So um, keep that, and that may be where a, a real estate agent um, or a professional can help you out, finding the right place that's, um, that will be conducive to your um, sexual orientation or your gender identity. Right. And also if you're I'm sorry, also if you're as a same sex couple, if you're purchasing a home, let's say that you're not married, but you want to make sure if you're purchasing a home together, make sure that each other, if something should happen, you're protected and it doesn't go to the family. It it goes to you because you both have put money on the table. So now that, you know, same sex laws, same sex marriage is recognized in all states. But let's say that it's it's a same-sex couple that is not married, but yet they want to purchase a home together. So you, you do need a will or a living trust and all of those type of things. It's just as important that you have covered due diligence when it comes to the investment that two of you have made. Absolutely. Yeah, and I will say that um, that's um, the Fair Housing Act is a, a federal law. There are 15 states that have protections for LGBT um, people. Unfortunately, Texas and Colorado Texas are not, not one of them. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say Texas is not one. <laughs> right. And there are only, uh, unfortunately, four states that protect uh, transgender people. Um, so just keep that into consideration. Your state might have some protections, but um, by and large, the country still has a lot of catching up to do. Right. Um, are um, are there any other considerations that we're thinking other than maybe, maybe protections or security that LGBT people need to consider? Um, you know, one of the things that David and I often talk about is, um, you know, it seems like, especially when we're younger, maybe not so much now, but when we were younger, everybody was gravitating towards the gay cities like L.A. and San Francisco and New York City and, you know, Chicago. And um, they're very expensive cities. So we, we often 
talk about our second and third tier cities more advantageous for the queer community to move to than maybe first tier cities because you have to take into consideration the long-term consequences um, and living in LA could eat away your long-term retirement savings um, or um, other life goals that you're trying to achieve beyond just having a good uh, a city to party in. Right. I, I think one of the things that we, we found very interesting when we did a little bit of research for uh, that subject of, uh, of moving to second and third or fourth tier gay cities was the density of uh, LGBT individuals in some cities. The number one, the highest density for uh, gay people or queer people per capita is a city that we never would have thought of, and it's Salt Lake City, Utah. I never would have expected that Salt Lake City has the highest number of gay people per capita. Uh, and so if you're looking for, you, you may want to do a little bit of research. If you're looking for a city that it really can, um, you can move into and feel like you're a part of a community. One of the things we mentioned on a previous show was that you can move into some of these cities like LA, New York, or some of these big cities. And they're so big that you don't feel like you're a part of a community, even though there are hundreds of thousands of other gay people. But if you move into a city that has a smaller gay community, it may be one that is more uh, uh, conducive to your life or your lifestyle, one that you can actually become a part of and, and have uh, a fun time I interacting with. So and my apologies to everyone in Salt Lake City that's watching this. My facial expression is when you said that. <laughs> I love Salt Lake City. I love Utah. And yeah, I actually had a good colleague from work that just relocated from Houston to Salt Lake City. That's where he wanted to raise his growing family. So uh, that's surprising to hear. But yeah, I always tell people, think outside the box. You don't want to follow the bandwagon and going to, you know, one of the big cities because it's a big price tag that comes along with it. Yeah. So find some other cities and, and, and try to possibly see what might work for you. I always tell people that maybe this isn't good for the U.S. economy, but maybe even international moving. It's maybe it's something that I have pondered myself for years. I'm still trying to see how I can get a Canadian citizenship <laughs> because I love Toronto. You love Justin I, Trudeau. <laughs> and I love Vancouver, you know, British Columbia. So that that's me. And as well as Caribbean. I think the Caribbean is amazing as well. So, well, you know, it's interesting that you make, you bring up that point because there is, there, there, um, so one of the problems that older people in general, regardless of whether they're straight or queer, um, are suffering from is taking on too much debt too close to retirement. And a lot of older people, individuals or couples, are doing their retirement now in places around the world where the cost of living isn't as high and the, the health insurance is uh, better than it is here in the United States. Um, so that's something to take into consideration because over half of Americans um, reported last year, 2015, um, can't afford to live in their homes. They've had to make sacrifices in other areas of their lives um, because they can't afford to make their mortgage payments. So they either fall back on credit card payments. Um, they can't send their kids to the right school. They're not investing for retirement. So, um, right. you know, when you when you are considering buying a home, take your home purchase or your investment property in as consider a, a component of an overall financial plan. And maybe that's you know where a real estate agent can help you kind of figure out exactly where that fits. Yeah. yeah, or they can't afford to retire. So. Exactly. Right. You have a right. home, but you got to keep on working for the rest of your life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that one of the, the statistics I think that, that the federal government uses is that if you're spending more than, uh, I want to say it's 30, 30, 30 to 35%. 30? 
So 30% of your income should just go on housing. And if you're spending more than that, then you really need to sit back and reevaluate. And the, so many of millennials that we were talking about earlier, they're spending up to 50 to 60% of their income just on housing, and these massive rents. Right. Well, and some of them in these bigger cities are having two and three roommates, but still dropping almost 2000 a month on rent. So that is a growing number that is increasing sadly. But yes, the number you want to walk away with from everyone watching this is 30% of your income should go towards housing. And ideally no more. Right. And right. Is, is that take home pay or is that your total net uh, income. Uh, gross pay? Your take home pay. Yeah. So it, it's very, that's a, a very interesting statistic because oftentimes we've forget when we say that we make $50,000 a year, we have to remember that, okay, 20% of that is going to taxes and 15% of that is going to health benefits and I'm putting 7% in my 401k or 10% of my 401k. So you really end up having sometimes 50% of what you think you're earning actually being the money you're taking home. Yeah. I know all too well. I was looking at my, my, uh, a bank check statement the other day. I'm thinking <laughs> I have paid an enormous amount of money in taxes. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah 30%. That's the number to remember. 30% of your income should go towards housing. So when you're looking at buying a home and they're doing the calculations on the mortgage, keep that in mind. Again, you don't want to shackle yourself with golden handcuffs. And that's what I call these massive mortgages and these enormous car notes. Yeah. Right. So I feel like we've, most of the talk we've done about this has been mostly about buying a home. Um, do the same considerations uh, go into effect when you're looking to buy an investment property or are there unique considerations um, that you would re- recommend, William? Yeah, the thing I want to recommend for people with investment property, and that actually is a book that I'm working on with my parents, a book on investment property. People think it's so easy. And I think it is essentially easy to buy a piece of investment property, but you need to decide what are you going to do with it? Are you going to hang on to it? Are you going to flip it? Or are you going to live it? Like, what are you trying to do with it? The thing of it is, is that if you're trying to be a real estate investor, you don't need to play with scared money. Similar to if you go to the casino, if you're gambling with scared money, you're not going to win. So when you are a real estate investor out here trying to say you're a real estate investor purchasing all these homes, you really need to have a substantial amount of money in the bank. Because if you're trying to flip a home, you need to be prepared if that home sits on the market and it doesn't sell in the time frame that you want it to. And yet that next mortgage payment is going to come. I think people get carried away because they watch these shows on HGTV (laughs) and DIY Network and they just think, oh, it's so easy. (laughs) And so if you want even to be a... A, an investor that holds on to your property. Do you want to be a landlord or do you want to hire a property manager? Now, keep in mind, sometimes people say, well, I don't want to hire a property manager because I don't want to pay the money, the 10% that they charge. But are you okay with the tenant calling you at 1030 at night when the water heater has busted? Right. Or if the child has put something in the commode and it won't flush because <laughs> these people, they're not going to be calling down to the front office of an apartment. They're calling you. Right. And so that's where a property manager really steps in. And I'm a firm believer in property managers. I have an investment property and I pay the 10 percent every month because I don't want to deal with the phone calls. That's a decision that I made. And that's a decision that I put into my budget every month. I also made the decision as an investor. I don't want to see the money whatsoever. So I have a tenant that pays the rent every month. 
part of the proceeds go to pay the property manager and the other part of the proceeds go to the HOA association. The small profit that I walk away with after the mortgage is paid is around about a few hundred bucks. I don't want to see that money. It goes automatically into an account. That account is what I use to pay the property tax. And that's also what I use if the air conditioner should break in August mm-hmm. in Texas, which you will write a hot check to get it. See. <laughs> <laughs> but I use that account for money that I need for the house. I don't want to rely on that money for my own fat pockets. Right. So that's the recommendations that I tell people if you want to be an investor, really go into it with a plan uh, and be smart with it. I have a young couple that um, they purchased about four homes as an investment property and they are all rented, but they have a substantial amount of income based upon their nine to five jobs. If two of those houses set empty for a couple of months, they'll be okay. And that's something as an investor, if you have more than one property, be prepared that your property might sit empty. And are you going to be okay with that? Right. Is the calculation still um, to estimate your finances, uh, to estimate that um, your home is going to be only filled for 10 months out of 12? So you have two months of reserve per per property. Is that the good rule of thumb or has that changed? heard that analogy. I, I mean, I don't agree. I, I'm not saying I disagree with you. I, I, I haven't heard too much about that analogy, but it seems like it's worth looking into. Yeah. But definitely always be prepared because I know so many investors that, you know, a tenant moves out and, you know, you have to go in there and fix up what the tenant did mm-hmm. and then put the house back out there on the rental market. And it might take a minute for another tenant comes in. Now you're getting people that are applying, but those are not people that you necessarily want. Right. Right. You have the right as an owner or a landlord to be selective. And if you are an investor, are you running background checks? You know, um, criminal and sexual, all type of background checks are the people that's living in your homes and what type of lease stipulations are you making? Are they signing a 12-month lease or a 16th to 18th month lease? If they're signing an 18-month lease, are you given some type of incentive? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to consider when becoming a an investor in real estate. I'm not to discourage people away from it, but it's just something that you do need to do your homework in just as if you were buying a home to live in as your homestead. Sure, yeah, right. exactly. Um, so that's been a good conversation. I think this has been very informative, and I think our, our readers or, or our listeners will really enjoy it. Um, before we go ahead and close this out, William, do you have any sort of last thoughts you want to share? Yeah, I just want to share with people that purchasing a home, it's, it's a great, rewarding experience. Hopefully, we said some things not to scare you, but make you think and do your research. And I'm always happy to answer additional questions that you all might have. I know I look very young, but I've had my real estate license <laughs> you know, for over 10 years now. So I know a thing or two. I'm not a guru, but I'm happy to answer any questions anyone might have. Feel free to email me at william at williamsmatthews.com. Visit my website, williamsmatthews.com, and and get get the books. They're both on Amazon. Just type in William S. Matthews. So this has been fun, and hopefully we've we've broken a lot of misconceptions about the home ownership process. Yeah, absolutely. Great, it's been you. fun having you. Thank you. David, do you have anything that you want to share? Or? No, I, I, well, actually, I think I will say um, that uh, individuals should never feel pressured into buying a place. You know, you want to be cautious. Uh, so don't let an, an agent or, or a family member uh, or uh, a mortgage lender pressure you into buying a place that you're not comfortable with. This is uh, most likely will be one of the most expensive purchases of your life. And so you want to make sure that you're doing what's right for you. 
uh, when John and I were first uh, looking at places, uh, when we were we were looking at climbing out of our basement apartment uh, and we had paid off all of our debt and we were looking, remember that our agent was trying to encourage us to buy something that was uh, at that time probably about seven to eight times our combined income. And we just were not, we did not feel comfortable with that. And that was in 2007. And boy, are we glad that we bought something that was less than uh, two times yeah. our combined income. And, you know, and uh, so we, like you, William, we bought a place that we could easily afford. Uh, and kind of the basically the way we looked at it is, is it a place that we could afford if one of us ever lost our jobs? And, uh, you know, and having that lower, uh, lower cost, lower mortgage has allowed us to, break into the uh, uh, the or spend the time trying to work this side hustle and actually becoming the debt-free guys. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so. because just because you've been approved for, just throw a number out there, 400000 doesn't necessarily mean you need to purchase a $400,000 house. Right. right. You And that's another thing that people don't know. You might just say, okay, well, that's great, but I want to stay in the three hundred bracket, you know, yeah. and you give yourself that extra cushion. So always keep that in mind. You don't have to max out your approval just because you've been approved at that amount. Go under. Right. right, and the fact that we we bought so cheap, it's it's afforded us the opportunity to travel to London, Spain, Australia, New Zealand, Mexico several times. So right. um, that's allowed us to do you know have a better quality of life. Plus, we're also ahead on our mortgage by seven years right now, right? Or right. Eight, yeah, seven or eight years. So um, you know, it's a lot uh, less stress, and I think that a lot of people had to deal with uh, in the last uh, since the Great Recession. So, so thank you, William, for joining us again for another great show. We'll definitely have you back. You're always fun and uh, informative to have. And uh, we want to thank uh, you, our audience, for joining us today. Please remember to like and share and comment and subscribe to our show on YouTube as well as iTunes. And join us next week for another edition of Queer Money. Thank you. Thanks, William. Bye. Thank you, guys. Now I need to go pay my mortgage. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, what an awesome episode. Thank you again to William for joining us. There's lots of great information in this week's podcast, and we think these are seven of the most important takeaways, including William's number one piece of advice for all homebuyers. First, put spending on pause and pay down debt when preparing to buy a home. This increases your credit score and makes you look less risky to lenders. Second, your first home most likely isn't your forever home, so you don't need the perfect home right away. Grow into it. Third, your first home purchase should be a strategy allowing you to buy up to something that suits you as you grow financially. Fourth, don't get shackled by golden handcuffs or becoming house poor. What will having a big mortgage prevent you from being able to do with the rest of your life? Five, exercise caution when buying a flipped house. You could be paying a higher price and limiting your ability to get price appreciation because you paid for it all already. Six, housing costs shouldn't be more than 30% of your take-home pay. Paying more could prevent you from being able to afford the other necessities of life. And finally, the seventh point here is, if you are going to become a real estate investor, don't play with scared money or money that you need to live on. Have a financial cushion. So again, thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes and get the free Queer Money newsletter at queermoney.net. Thank you. Okay. We just serviced you, now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle newsletter at queer.money. Well, I'm not really gay.
would help me if I had a personal chef made all me all my healthy meals for me. Right. So instead, I'll have a Snickers tonight for dinner. The other end, I like the butts. So. <laughs> yeah. uh, From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking Queer Money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.